Good morning, everybody. It's great to be together. My name is Gio. I'll be, have the, I have the honor of speaking to you this morning. Excited to do that. I am going to be embarking on the most incredible story in the Old Testament, and that is the story of David. Arguably one of Israel's greatest kings to have ever lived. And the reason why he's one of the greatest kings who ever lived was because he knew where to put his hope. But to understand his world, that's his name in Hebrew, by the way. Joe, thank you for that. It's really great writing there. I don't know how you got the Hebrew pen to do that, but fantastic writing. To understand his world, the world he was born into was a violent world. Because in that world, there was a lot of ancient warfare. And it's kind of difficult for us to get our minds around. We grow up, we grow up when we see war on TV. We see war from drones. We see war from satellites. And Hollywood tries to, you know, glamorize it, you know. I was watching some clips of Troy this week. I was like, oh, that sounds exciting. But then when I think about it, that sounds scary. And brave hearts. And gladiator, a slave, a general who became a slave. A slave who defied the emperor. And I like eating popcorn while I'm watching it. But in reality, in those days of ancient warfare, you saw warfare over the edge of your shield with your stomach in your throat. In ancient warfare, you kill at an arm's distance. You're looking them in the eye. You know what they ate for breakfast. You know what they drank. You can smell their breath. You have to fear it. You have to smell it to understand this world. You saw fear. You saw savagery. Perhaps you saw the glaze of someone who drank enough to give him the courage to yell and to scream and to kill. But the worst thing you could see in ancient warfare was calm. When you looked at your adversary and he was calm. Because you were looking and you were gazing into the eyes of a man killer, a veteran of the shield wall, a man that's acquainted with death. And shield men who survived the wall after the battle would, would look at themselves and try to figure out which blood is on them, mine or theirs. And most likely their wounds ended, ended in, in infection. And they would die or lose a limb. Although they didn't know about germs back then, they knew one thing in that time. They knew that if your, if your arm or leg was pierced and your clothing got stuck in your flesh, they knew that you would lose your limb. They knew that much. That's why sometimes in ancient warfare, you see people fighting naked. Because they understood that. 
And if your brother to your right or to your left lost their courage and ran, you would certainly be dead. And before anyone would come to gather your body or rescue your body or bury your body, the birds of the air and the beasts of the field would prey upon your flesh. That was the world David was born in. And if you're a guy in this room, you're like, I like movies much better. Or you're a kind of guy that says, give me my shield. I don't know. This was the world. And so we hear, I want to take you to a place, a spot in David's life. He was a young man. And there were some things going on. And I want to just kind of walk us through the story a little bit. It says, now the Philistines gathered their forces of war and assembled at Soko in Judah. The Philistines and Israelites faced each other on opposite hills with the valley between them. Let me explain a little bit of the history of these two people. This goes way back. They've been fighting for generations. The Philistines were, were actually descendants of Noah, his son Ham, and they were in the land of Canaan, but they were never kicked out of the land of Canaan. When Joshua started his campaign to take the promised land, they were still there, and they stayed there. These were warlike people. Sometimes when you read your Bible, you see men like Jephthah, Shamgar, Samson. They all fought the Philistines. You remember Jephthah? He was like, anything that comes out of my door, if you let me beat the Philistines, I'll kill the first thing that comes out of my door. And God goes, great, you have victory. And then his daughter comes out. That's how deep this blood feud goes. It's deep. And there's hatred. Then, they, you know, then they had a, Israel named Samson had long, awesome hair. And he was filled with the spirit of the Lord. And he was super strong. He took a jawbone once and struck down a thousand Philistines. This is a war that's been going on with Israel. Interesting, the word Philistine in Hebrew and Greek, it's Palestine. In our modern day world, it's Palestine. This has been going Long time, cousins, brothers, friends have been killed in battle. And here they are once again. But this time Israel has a king, and it's King Saul. Israel has been fighting them for so long over territory. I think because Philistines enjoyed war. They liked it. You know, when, when the Israel, Israelites were coming out of the Egypt and the Red Sea parted, God, they could have taken a shortcut to the land of Canaan, but God had them go like in the long way. You know why? Because in the shortcut route, guess who was there? The Philistines. And God told them, hey, you might get scared. You guys better go the other way. Because they were just slaves. They weren't soldiers yet. The Philistines were warriors for many more years than the Israelites. So that was the background. So in verse 4, then Goliath, a Philistine champion, Came out of the, uh, from Gath, came out of the Philistines' ranks to face the forces of Israel. He was six, and a half, uh, six cubits in the span, basically nine and a half feet tall. Who's the tallest guy in the room? 
I know that's not me. Nine and a half feet tall. He wore a bronze helmet. And his bronze coat of mail weighed 125 pounds. So he wasn't like tall and skinny. Right? We've seen those guys. Like, they're tall, but I'll take you. Right? This guy was tall and meaty. He also wore a bronze leg armor and he carried a bronze javelin on his shoulder. The shaft of his spear was as heavy and thick as the weaver's beam tipped with an iron spearhead that weighed 15 pounds. And they had an armor bearer that carried a shield. This was not a throwing javelin. This was a stabbing spear. And what Goliath would do, he would stand in the second rank of the shield wall. And because he was so tall, he would use that spear and he would kill and kill and kill and kill. That's what he would do. He was a man killer. He was a guy you saw across the shield wall and he was calm. That's who he was. That's Goliath. A veteran of the shield wall. And so Goliath, Goliath stood and shouted and taunted across to the Israelites. Why are you all coming out to fight? I'm a Philistine champion. But you're only the servants of Saul. Choose one man to come down and fight me. And if he kills me, then we'll be your slaves. But if I kill him, you'll be our slaves. I defy the armies of Israel today. Send me a man to fight me. This was a winner-take-all MMA pay-per-view. Man-to-man. And Goliath, he's been doing this since he was a boy, since he was young. The Philistines wanted to end Israel once and for all. This was their moment. And when their king and when their king saw and the Israelites heard this, they were terrified. And deeply shaken. You know, when I was in sixth grade, I felt that. Terror and deeply shaken. I was on my way home with my sixth grade buddy, Jim. We're walking home because we were neighbors from a, a pleasant day at public school. <laughs> Where every kid is loving. No one's neglected. And as we're walking, we're about to turn the corner on Juanita Avenue. You ask, why do you know all those details? Because when you're scared of something, you remember everything. <laughs> That's why. I'm making a left, and as I'm on the left, there's a little church called Disciples of Christ, which I always was curious, like, what's in there? And I'm turning the corner, and I hear my name. I hear Giovanni, but it wasn't like Giovanni. Giovanni. I'm like, that sounds like someone who's very mad at me. And I turn around. And I see the boy at school who picks on other kids and beats them up. And he's headed my way. And he said my name. And he's staring right at me. And he's walking toward me. Boom. And, I, and he weighed way more than me. He was bigger than me. He was scarier than me. He needed hugs, but no one knew that at the time. 
And so they released this guy in the sixth grade. They released these kind of kids in the sixth grade. And here he's calling my name. And I'm with my buddy Jim. And Jim and I are scared. And he's walking with his other friend who's ironically named Jim too. Jim Ryday. And he approaches me and he stands and towers over me. And he says to me, you lied to me. And I'm like, I swear I wasn't trying to lie. I swear. And, and I'm, he goes, you told me that the score of the soccer game against my friend was three to one. It was actually seven to zero. I was trying to be nice. <laughs> when he asked me in the hallways, it was like, it was three to one. <laughs> and then he asked his friend, he goes, no, it was seven to zero. So he came looking, he came looking for me over that. <laughs> over that, came looking for me and he found me. And I stood there terrified. I couldn't move. I have compassion for people in scary movies when they can't move. I understand that feeling. I understand the feeling. You're like, run, run. No, no, no. No, don't drop the keys. Run. No, they're like, they're really scared. And I stood there hoping he would let me go. I could, I'm fast. I could run. But I couldn't move. And then I felt the flesh of his hand clenched hit me in the lips. And I felt the throbbing of my face and the taste of my blood in my mouth. And you think at that moment, Gio would just go fisticuff. Not me, not that, that's how I was pre-MMA. <laughs> he was my inspiration. And I stood there bleeding. And then he walked away. And then my friend Jim put his hand over me and says, man, that was rough. And I kept thinking, where were you? Where were you? Fear can be paralyzing. What's he doing in his tent? Is he praying? Is he invoking the name of God? Is he, God, rescue me? He's just in there scared. And so Goliath, day after day, for weeks, he's taunting Israel. And, the, and Israel's looking at their champion. Their champion was Saul. Saul was a head taller than any other Israelite. He was their Goliath. And Goliath was in the tents. You know when you see a tall guy? You look for a tall guy. Fight it out. But this, you can learn something from. We place our hope in what we depend on. We place our hope in who we depend on. And when the person we depend on disappoints us, oftentimes the measure of our hope becomes the measure of our disappointment or the measure of our disdain. When I was 17, I joined, the, I joined the United States Army. Hua, I was proud to do that. And I went in there at 17 not knowing what I got myself into. I showed up, there were 60 guys in an open bay barrack, and there was a lot of testosterone in that room, I realized. And they were 19, 20, and 24-year-olds in there. And you had to be careful with how you navigated the bay, because at any moment, a fight would break out. And they put us in little bays, and you had two bunk beds, two bunk beds per section. And I was assigned a bunk bed, 
my bunk mate was six feet, three, six foot three, black belt in karate, and I said, which one do you want? <laughs> I'll take the bottom bunk. Great, I'll take the top bunk. Been wanted it the whole time, yeah. <laughs> but in my heart, I felt so happy because he was my bunk mate. And every night, you'd see him do his forms. And I, was, I walked around like, man, I got backup. Man, don't mess with me. You mess with me, you mess with him. I walked around confident. And for weeks, I was like, yeah, don't come into our bunk without permission. Don't come into our area. That was who I hung out with. I put a lot of hope in this guy. And if you're familiar with the army, there's a line for everything, a line to eat, a line for formation, a line to do your laundry, a line for the telephone to call home. And men get impatient when they're in a line. This is for the women to understand a little bit of the men's perspective. We don't like lines. And so one day in the laundry room, there's a bunch of laundry bags waiting to go on their turn, and you're supposed to make sure to when your laundry's done, to take it out. Well, my buddy was, had his laundry next. And one of the guys, because he wasn't there, he took his spot and dumped his laundry in and started the wash. And then my bunkmate came in. And I was in the laundry room reading my little army manual. And I looked up. said, that was a bad move, brother. That's a bad move. And the next thing I saw, a flurry of movement, and I heard four clear sounds of flesh, hitting flesh, hitting flesh, hitting flesh. And my bunkmate was on the floor, <laughs> gurgling on his own blood. Because Private Terrell, who is my size, said, I'm not having any of that. And I remember the moment I felt inside when I saw my buddy on the ground. It wasn't filled with compassion. I was disappointed. <laughs> how, how can you? How can you? How can you? How can? What was this? I put a lot of hope in you, man. What happened? What happened? And I remember staring at him, not feeling an ounce of compassion, going, "What's the matter with you?" Now I'm vulnerable. <laughs> and this is where Saul is at. Could you imagine as men what they must be feeling? Where's our Goliath? You know, one day you're going to face a Goliath if you haven't already. You will face one. Maybe they won't punch you in the lips like they punched me in the lips, but there's a different kinds of Goliath that are out there. And you know, you see them. And Saul is, you know, it's just, it's just, I just find it funny that Saul's there. But what's, what's hilarious is that I remember the private's name who won, Private Terrell. And I can't, for the whole week, I could not remember my bunkmate's last name. And we were bunkmates for nine weeks. And the next day at formation, we line up for roll call every day. Where's Hunter? Every day, they check on you. Are you here? Because guys who start running for, they start running for the hills and go AWOL. They want to know where you're at. And so since he was six foot three, a head taller than everyone else, the first sergeant asks him, calls his name, burr, burr. soldier, what happened to your face? 
And you heard people snickering throughout the ranks of the platoon. And he goes, First Sergeant, I fell off my bunk. And we're all like, good answer. That's a really good answer. Saul is conspicuously missing. His credibility is slipping away each and every day. And the hope that his men have to ever win this battle is slipping away as well. And this illustrates an important point in the story of David. Because God never intended for his people to have a human king. That wasn't the plan. Because God knew that what you depend on is where you place your hope. And God wanted to be their king. And he wanted them to place their hope in him. And in fact, 400 years ago, before this event happened, God actually established a theocracy. It was a nation of laws administered by judges. And God would be the king. And God would give the law, and the judges would administer it. And this put Israel actually thousands of years ahead of their time. And the model that the Israelites had seen, well, they just came out of Egypt. All they knew was Pharaoh, a king. And so in this passage, in this passage in 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 8, it says, As Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons to be judges over Israel. But they are not like his father, for they were greedy for money. They, had, they accepted bribes and perverted justice. Finally, all the elders of Israel met at Ramah to discuss the matter with Samuel. Look, you're old, and your sons are not like you. Give us a king to lead us, to judge us, like the other nations have. You see, the elders had forgotten that God had, had, had created Israel for a specific purpose. And that purpose goes all the way back to Abraham. And because of him, they would all be blessed. And in that, in that descendant process, there would be a king of kings, a lord of lords, who would come, and during the meantime, God would be their king. And so, Samuel was displeased with their request and went to the Lord for guidance. And God said, do everything that they say to you. God respects us even when we're boneheads. For they are not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. They don't want me to be their king any longer. Do as they ask, but warn them about the way a king will reign over them. And Samuel does. Samuel says, you want a king? This guy's going to tax you. He's going to tax your crops. He's going to tax your herds. He's going to draft your men in the army. He will force your children to serve him. He will fill the ranks of his harem with your best daughters. Is that what you want? And the elders said yes. And their insistence led the way for one of the most detailed accounts and the narrative accounts of the story of David. Israel's second king. And like I said, arguably, Israel's greatest king. And this is the story of David. A reluctant, confident, and humble man. A humble king. Unlike average kings in Israel, 
David loved the law. Kings liked to be the law. In fact, when a king broke the law, they would change what the law said to match what the king said. And the king's words were final. And what made David extraordinary was, was David's, he loved the law even when it condemned him. Instead of changing the law, David allowed himself to be broken over God's law. And we get to see the literature that he wrote and the Psalms that he wrote. And they, they're writings about his love for God. And that conviction, the place where David put his hope in, that conviction gave him the clarity. He was never confused about the identity of Israel's true king. Despite his enormous power, his great success on the battlefield, he was never confused who the true king was. For many of us, that's not the case. Success confuses the best of us. Especially when you have sales success. You have family success. You have parenting success. You have financial success. You have a little academic success. And then we place ourselves as the king of our lives. And we place our hope and the one we depend on ourselves. King David never made that mistake. David didn't put his hope in himself. David put his hope in God. And we get to see a glimpse of that from this amazing perspective when he was just 15 years old and his father sends him to deliver a care package to his brother while the Philistines and the Israelites were on opposite hills and about to fight a battle. And Saul was terrified. And when David goes to the line and he delivers the package, he's like a 15-year-old. He's curious. He's like, what's going on? What's happening around here? What's going on? Oh, I'm going to catch this on Snapchat. What's happening? Oh, dang. This might go viral. He overhears Goliath taunting the armies of Israel. And instead of being afraid like Saul, and instead of being terrified and deeply shaken, you know what David is? David is offended. He's offended. He's 15. He's not a veteran of the shield wall. He's not a soldier. He's a shepherd. I wonder if we get stuck in our tents. I wonder if the Goliath for you is change. Because change could be a huge Goliath. And Joe's been talking about changing. And we got to change the way we see ministry, the way we see God, and the way we see God taking us. Sometimes change is a Goliath. Because you got to look at yourself. And you may have to take yourself off the throne. And that's hard to do because, you know, kings like to make the law. Kings don't like the law to, be, to, help, to help break them. They want to make it. And so David 
is asking questions, and Saul hears about this. Someone wants to fight Goliath, and so Saul meets with David. And you know what Saul's reaction to David is? Just a boy. Can't fight this guy. You don't got any scars. You've never been on a shield wall. And David goes, no, no, man, you got it all wrong. You see, I'm a shepherd, but when a lion took one of my dad's sheep, and we had a lot of them, and he just took one, I wasn't like, man, that's cool. I was like, no, 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 not today. And I went, I tracked that lion down. And I grabbed it, and I killed it. And another time a bear came. He did the same thing. You know what? I did the same thing. I tracked it down, and I killed it. And Saul's like, maybe you're the one. And David says this. He starts asking these questions. When David asked the soldiers standing by, will the man get for killing this Philistine and ending this defiance of Israel, this pagan, who's allowed to defy the armies of the living God? And he tells Saul the story. Hey, I've killed these people. I've killed bear and lion because this guy has defied Israel. The Lord who rescued me. He's like, I'm good, but I'm not that good. Rescue me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, and he'll rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. That's what he's telling Saul. He has absolutely no confusion. He has extraordinary clarity. He simply just saw that Goliath, if he's an enemy of God's people, he's an enemy of God. It was clear. He's not Goliath isn't defying the armies. He's defying God. You look at the clarity. And this conviction that David had about this perspective, this clarity, his conviction is that any man or woman need not fear whose hope is in the Lord. Even when there's something to be afraid of. He says, Saul, pick me, man. I'm your guy. I'm the guy that's willing to do what your soldiers are willing to do and what you're not willing to do. I'm your guy. Pick me. And if you read the Old Testament, and we're going to look at a lot of these, these passages as in the coming several, several weeks as we look at David. He writes this psalm. He writes poetry. We get an incredible glimpse into his mind, into his heart, and we get this feeling that this man, who he is, he writes, in you, Lord, my God, I put my trust. David had a perspective about God that God wanted his people to have toward him. God wanted the whole nation of his people to have this perspective in their hearts. And he wants you to have this perspective on your heart, in your mind, when you go through difficult times. When you see your Goliath, when you meet your Goliath. And then... It says, no one whose hope is in you will ever be put to shame. And then he goes on to say something that kings usually don't say. Guide me in your truth and teach me. For you are God my Savior and my hope is in you all day long. This is why... He sees, he sees Goliath so differently. So back to the story. And you can only imagine 
when David starts coming out. Can you imagine what the Philistines must have thought to themselves or said? It's just a boy. Is this a joke? Imagine the laughter. It's a boy coming out to fight a man. Can you imagine the soldiers of Israel? It's just a boy. Saul made an agreement that this boy is going to represent us, and if he loses, we're slaves. My wife's a slave. My daughter's a slave. We're all slaves. It's just a boy. Can you imagine? And Goliath's response is, you brought a shepherd to fight a champion? Oh, dude, you're done. You are done. And Goliath is kind of cocky. And then David's reaction. He's looking right at Goliath. Yeah, you going to come at me with that sword and spear and javelin? I'm going to come at you with the name of the Lord. Today, God's going to conquer you. And I'm going to cut off your head. <laughs> and your body's going to be laying here, and the birds of the air and the beasts of the field, they're going to feast on your flesh. This is a boy telling a veteran, a professional, a killer of men. And he says, because I want everyone here to know that God will rescue his people, not by the sword and not by the spear, for this battle belongs to God. And then David kills Goliath. And the Philistines make the most brutal mistake in the shield wall discipline. They turn and run. And the Bible describes it this way. The slaughter lasted all day long. Remember when I told you if your friend loses courage, your brother to your left or right, you are surely dead. And that's exactly what happened. And Israelites slaughtered the Philistines and plundered their wealth on that day. And David became the most famous king and the most feared enemy of the Philistines because of where David put his hope. So it is with those who put their hope in the Lord. They see clearly, they act confidently, and they walk humbly. But here's the key. They recognize they cannot control outcomes because there are too many variables outside of their control. Men and women and students wake up every day and realize, I can't control the outcomes. Instead, what they do is they lean the weight of their life against the one who has all the variables in his hands. And that's God. My hope is in you, Lord, all day long. This is a powerful statement that takes us to the epicenter of who David is, a man after God's own heart. In the moments when you realize you're the smartest guy in the room, I hope that you whisper under your breath, O oh Lord, in you I put my trust and hope all 
day long. In those moments where you feel the world is crashing down around you, I hope you whisper under your breath, Oh Lord, in you I put my trust and hope all day long. The life of David that we're going to look at in this series. An imperfect king, an imperfect man, who never throughout his reign turned his back on the law of God. Thank you, and hopefully we'll see you next week.